I'm Ronnie. Welcome to the That's the Story afternoon session. Every single weekday, Monday to Friday at this time, we'll be bringing you the That's the Story show. It's going to have stories, songs, competitions, games, hopefully bringing you a little bit of sunshine into your day and giving you something to do during the lockdown. Can be a bit boring sometimes. My goodness, what can you do when you've done everything, huh? So, we'll have art-making competitions, story-writing competitions. I'll tell you all about that a little bit later on. But for now, what about having a tea party with your stuffed animals? That's something to do. Tea for you? Asked Bryony as she poured the watery black liquid into the decorated cup. And how about a scone? She asked as she pushed the plate of food towards Mr B's knees. Lovely day, isn't it? said Mr B's niece, twiddling his moustache and sitting back in his chair, his eyes wandering around the rather attractive garden. Tea for you too? Bryony nodded in Gertrude's general direction and passed over another of the beautiful cups, full to the brim with hot, steaming liquid. And how about a slice of this gorgeous lemon tart? I whipped it up only this morning, said Bryony, proudly offering the floral platter towards Gertrude. Gertrude took a slice of tart and placed it on her saucer. She too stretched, relaxed and sat back in her chair. Isn't this just delightful, sighed Gertrude, sipping on her tea and also admiring the view. The garden was just divine. The lawn was freshly mown and the flowers nodded on their stems, bobbing to and fro in the gentle breeze. Bryony poured a drink for herself, carefully adding the milk and sugar, chatting politely to her guests about the weather, the garden and the general state of the world. The garden party was all going rather well, and the guests were very happy. Bryony smiled as she nodded in agreement to Mr B's knee's comments. Meanwhile, back at the house, Mrs Crocus looked out of the kitchen window. There was her daughter, Bianca, sitting in the middle of the unkempt lawn, her two toy teddies perched on cardboard boxes either side, pouring water from the plastic tea set that she'd got for Christmas. Mrs Crocus smiled and wondered what on earth could be going through Bianca's mind as she watched her daughter chatting absently to her toys. Okie diddly dokey, so... You're looking for something to do. Here's something to do. I'm looking for some more stories. If you've got a story that you would like to write and send it in to me, by all means do. Email your stories to me, ronnie at thatsthestory.co.nz. Once a week I'll pick a story, and if it's your story that we choose, we'll get it recorded by a voiceover artist and we'll play it right here on That's The Story. So, send me your stories. Email them to ronnie at thatsthestory.co.nz. Now, what else could you do on a day like this? Maybe you could fly a kite. Boy's kite flew high in the air. From up here, thought the kite, I can see everything. I can see the river where Boy fetches pondweed for his frogs. I can see Boy's cat stalking next door's rabbit. I can see Boy's school with the rows and rows of classrooms and the lines and squares painted on the tarmac outside. From up here I can see Boy's auntie, putting out the rubbish in her dressing gown and slippers. Oh, there's the rubbish truck coming down the road. Just in time, Mrs H. I can see old man Grumpy crossing the road to the post box, grumbling to himself as he does so. And I can see the marae where Boy has to take off his shoes. The carving on top of the farinui, the tickle tickle, looks down onto the marae, keeping an eye on the goings on. 
From up here, the world looks flat. Patchwork of houses, gardens, roads, fields, like someone has stuck down a lot of giant stamps. It gets colder as I get higher. Ooh, bring me down, boy, called the kite. Boy wasn't listening. He was too busy watching his brother spinning his car in big donut shapes in the paddock, listening to the straining engine and smelling the mixture of petrol and grass. The car drove off to its speed, narrowly missing Boy and leaving a trail of fumes. Bring me down, Boy, called the kite again. This time tugging on the string, Boy was jerked into action. At last, thought the kite, I was beginning to lose feeling in my strings, it's so cold. But as Boy reeled in his kite, a gust of wind snatched the kite sideways and out of Boy's hands. It blew past the river where Boy fetches pondweed, over Boy's cat, which had given up stalking next door's rabbit, floated over the rows of classrooms and the painted tarmac of Boy's school, past the rubbish truck, fast filling up, and the post box just being emptied, towards the marae where Boy has to take off his shoes. Whoa! Help! called the kite but the rushing wind drowned out its cries. Over the marae, the wind dropped and the kite plummeted towards the ground. Some guys who were laying a hangi out the back of the kitchen watched the kite as it fell, wondering what this strange bird was. The kite dived towards the Farinui, hoping that its fall would be broken by the roof. Closer and closer it got until the spinning string wrapped around the tickle-tickle and the kite came to rest right next to it. Kia ora, said the kite. Sorry to drop in on you like this. There it stopped, and there it stayed, looking like some sort of ancient decoration. Boy visited his kite often, and one of the Komatua even offered to climb up and fetch it down. But he quite liked it up there with the tickle-tickle. He thought it looked quite important. Boy's kite liked it up there too, and though it never felt quite as important as the tickle-tickle, they became firm friends, both of them enjoying the warm sun and keeping an eye on the goings-on around and about the marae. There's nothing quite like being a kite Nothing quite like it at all There's nothing quite like the gift of flight I quite simply Quite like 
What do you do when everything's gone? During a lockdown, what do you do to have some fun? During a lockdown, paint a picture, build a fort, make a ten meter high fruitcake. You can fly to the moon in a hot air balloon or drink a lemonade lake. What do you do when everything's done? During, during a lockdown. So, what do you do when you've done everything? Well, you could go to thatsthestory.co.nz and look at some of our cartoons that we've made. You could do a bit of gardening. You could do the dishes for mum and dad. You could make your bed and tidy your room. Or you could paint a picture for us. Paint or draw us a picture. Email it to me, ronnie at thatsthestory.co.nz and we'll put your picture up on the That's The Story Art Gallery. Go on, paint me a picture. Cameron was staying at her auntie's house, and as usual, her auntie and uncle had devised a cunning treasure hunt for her. Cameron was happy, very happy indeed. She carefully read clue number one. Let me think, let me think. Could I be in the kitchen sink, the clue said. Cameron raced into the kitchen and hunted around the sink area. There, twisted around the cold tap, was clue number two. Now here's a clue, oh what to do? Could I be hiding in the loo? Cameron giggled and made her way to the bathroom. The next clue was sitting on top of the toilet roll holder. There's lots of art hanging in the hall, but what you're looking for is a tool. Out in the garden shed. Cameron was puzzled. She read the clue out loud again, then she understood and skipped her way outside to the garden shed. Inside the shed, Cameron hunted high and low for the clue. There it was, hidden underneath her uncle's hammer. Clue number four. All the birds like to take a rest. Look for me in a tiny bird's nest. To anyone else, this clue might have sounded a bit weird. But Cameron's auntie had a collection of bird's nests that she'd found out in the carport. Cameron raced around to the other side of the house and began hunting through all the different sized nests. She found clue number five snuggled within a tiny soft nest made of fluff. She sells seashells on the seashore. I'm not in a shell but behind a door, in the kitchen. Cameron giggled again and made her way back inside the house into the kitchen. She opened all the cupboard doors and looked inside. Nothing. She opened the door to the laundry cupboard. There was clue number six stuck to the back of the door by a piece of blue tack. Phew, thought Cameron. That was taking a long time. Tick tock, tick tock, look for me behind a clock. Cameron's auntie and uncle didn't have many clocks in their house. They only had one that Cameron could think of. It was in the lounge and hadn't gone tick or tock for many, many years. But that had to be where clue number seven was hiding. The dog likes somewhere to lay its head. You'll find me inside the dog's bed. Where was the dog's bed? It tended to get moved around a lot, depending on where Cameron's auntie and uncle wanted the dog to lay down. Cameron looked around the living room. The dog's smelly old bed was over by the sofa. Cameron gingerly rummaged through the tatty covers. Clue number eight was hiding behind the sheepskin. Cameron likes a good sleep too. Look under your pillow for your next clue. Cameron had been staying with her auntie and uncle and had her own bed made up in the spare room. Cameron raced off again down to the end of the hallway and to the room where she was staying. Clue number nine was there under the pillow. Out in the garden, look for the fishes. Find your next clue and I'll give you three wishes. Not really. Cameron giggled again. Her auntie's poetry was getting worse but it still made the treasure hunt fun. Cameron headed back out to the garden and started looking around the edges of the large circular fish pond. 
There were seven fish in the pond, but no clues. Oh, there it was, hidden behind a plant. The elusive clue number ten. The treasure hunt is nearly over. Time to find your final clue. Come and find me. I'll be hiding in amongst a stinky shoe. Cameron ran into the house once again. She knew where her auntie and uncle kept their shoes. They were in a big messy pile at the end of their bed. Cameron knelt down on the floor and started looking inside each of the shoes. It was a horrible job, but someone had to do it. Cameron picked up her uncle's sneakers. The treasure wasn't in there. She picked up her auntie's high heels. Not in there either. And then she picked up one of her auntie's favourite and very old fluffy sheepskin slippers. Nestled right down the end of the slipper, Cameron felt something hard and round. She rummaged around a bit more and found two more hard, round objects. Cameron clenched them into her fist and pulled them out. Two $2 coins and one $1. Five dollars! Yee-haw! Cameron had found her treasure! She rushed to find her auntie to show her. Righto, said auntie. Let's walk to the shop and see what other treasure you can exchange that for, shall we? And that's exactly what they did. Auntie, said Cameron as they walked with the dog down the road, can we do another treasure hunt when we get home? Cameron wasn't sure, but she thought that she heard her auntie groan and mumble to herself, not another treasure hunt, surely. Possibly the silliest song ever written. Hey, maybe you could write me a song. Email it in to me. I'll get it produced and we'll play it right here on That's The Story. How cool would that be? Send it in to me. My email address is ronnie at thatsthestory.co.nz. Go ahead and do it. Now, what else could you do during the lockdown? If you've got any spare bits and bobs lying around the house, ask mum and dad, of course, first. But maybe, maybe you could make a ramp. We needed a ramp, not just some barely sloping, tiny, oh, is that it, kind of ramp. We needed a gutsy, curvy, looping, seriously cool kind of ramp. 
to do the kind of daredevil superheroes type stunts we were planning, we needed something that would give us a good run-up to the Ring of Terror. This was the plan. Me, Benji, Leo and Zach would take our bikes to the top of the ramp while Leo's younger sister Poppy made sure none of our parents were coming. We would be seriously in for it if they caught us. Poppy was also in charge of emergency services. That meant she had to have the garden hose on and ready. In case the dogs from the neighbourhood came sniffing around, she also had a box of plasters and a bottle of cough medicine just in case. What we were going to do was use the treehouse at the back of Benji's place. We'd build the ramp off the tree hut and put the ring of terror at the bottom of the ramp, go around upside down in the ring and then, ta-da, finish! Simple, easy, nothing to it. It was really important we get up enough speed before hitting the ring of terror. If we didn't, we'd be stuffed. That's why we chose the tree hut. It was the highest place we could get to. So after we collected wood from under Leo's house and Zach's backyard, nails from my garage, we started putting it all together. Took ages though. We didn't have a hammer. So we used all sorts of things to bang the nails in. Rocks, a broom handle, bricks, smaller pieces of wood and Benji's head. Nah, just kidding about Benji's head. Finally, the banging and building was finished. The four of us each had a bike. Benji and Zach would go up first, Leo and I would pass the bikes up to them and then climb up. That meant four people and four bikes in the treehouse at once. It was gonna be fantastic! Benji and Zach went up. Sweet, everything was going to plan. I passed a bike up to Leo who was halfway up the ladder on the tree and he hoisted it up to Benji and Zach. It was quite hot work. It's not as easy as it sounds, you know. Leo kept falling off the ladder because he couldn't hold on to the bike and the ladder or the tree at the same time. Ah! So we had to make some kind of safety rope for him. Really, we just tied him to the tree so he wouldn't fall off. Benji and Zach were hopeless. We didn't need two people up in the hut, so Zach came down and helped me. I should explain that the tree hut wasn't very high tech. It was pretty much just a couple of pallets nailed onto a couple of branches a ways up the tree. By the time we got the third bike up, it was looking kind of cramped up there. We should have noticed the hut starting to lean and the branches starting to bend then. We finally got the last bike up, untied Leo from the tree and started to climb. The four bikes took up heaps of room. Leo and Benji looked really nervous. I thought it was because of the ring of terror, but as soon as I got to the top of the ladder with Zach close behind, I understood. There was a strange kind of creaking. I quickly got up onto the hut. Zach was starting to panic and was yelling at us to hurry up and help him up. The creaking was now a groaning. We were all on a definite lean. I hadn't realised the treehouse was quite so high up. The groaning was now a cracking and a howling, screeching. Or was that Poppy warning us that our parents were coming? A snapping, my heart was banging in my chest and I could hear the blood pumping hard in my ears. The four of us hollered as the pallets, Mike, Zach, Benji, Leo and me fell from the tree and crashed to the ground. A heap of boys, bikes and a tree hut. I think we'll go with plan B. It's not much fun being a snail When the garden it gets dug And, and they, they dig 
right through your tail. Oh, it's not much fun being a snail. It's not much fun being a slug. Every time without fail, we'd be better off being bugs. It's not much fun being a slug. It's not much fun being a snail. We can't join many clubs and we never get the nail. Oh, it's not much fun being a snail. It ain't a barrel of laughs being a slug. We might as well set sail in a boat made from a mug. But life ain't too bad. We're never really all that sad. In fact, we're really quite glad. Cause we're the best mates we've ever had. So it ain't that and it ain't that bad being a snail We can stick together no matter what the weather And always have a whale We'll always have a snail all the time As snug as we stick together Okie diddly dokie, here's something for you to do for the rest of the afternoon Have a go at this little brain teaser. Okay, every single day we're going to be doing a different one of these. Have a go at it. See if you can guess where I am. So, you're about to get a whole bunch of clues. From those clues, try. Try and guess where it is that we're talking about. I'll have another one for you tomorrow. Right, here we go. Here are those clues. Where on earth could I be? It's tricky, I think you'll agree I'll give you a clue, perhaps even two Oh, where on earth could I be? This is an island country off the east coast of Africa in the Indian Ocean. It's the fourth largest island in the world. From 1895, France governed this country. In 1960, the country became a fully independent country. The capital is Antananarivo, home to over 2 million people. The official languages are Malagasy and French. It is home to over 22 million people. Its highest mountain is Mara Mokotro at 2,876 metres. Over 70% of the 250,000 wildlife species found in this country are found nowhere else in the world. 90% of the estimated 14,000 plants are also found nowhere else in the world. The lima is only found in the wild in this country. It has the third largest coral reef system in the world. This country is one of the world's main suppliers of vanilla. It currently provides half of the world's supply of sapphires. This is a relatively poor country, with approximately 70% of the population living below the national poverty line threshold of $1 per day. Oh, where on earth could I be? Goodness gracious me, I do not have one single clue as to where that might be. And living on a dollar a day, goodness gracious me, that would be quite tricky. Maybe you should give that a go. See if you could survive on $1 a day. I don't think you could. Nearly impossible. Give that a go this afternoon. See if you can do a bit of research and find out where it is that we were talking about. We'll have another one of those for you tomorrow. Now, who likes noodles? Dougal McFlugal liked noodles. Dougal McFlugal liked oodles of noodles. 
Dougal McFlugel even had a special noodle ladle that he would ladle his oodles of noodles onto his special noodle-eating plate. His noodle-eating plate had pictures of noodles on it. He liked it because when his noodles were nearly finished, he couldn't tell because under the noodles on his plate were pictures of noodles. He could lick the plate and imagine there were still noodles left to be eaten. Yes, Dougal McFlugel liked, nay, loved noodles. Dougal McFlugel had a big gap in his front teeth. He would suck his noodles up through the gap in his front teeth, slurping and squishing, slipping and burping until the end of the noodle would flick on his lip and be gone through the gap in his teeth. He loved doing this the most. And the longer the noodle, the better. There was a problem. Dougal McFlugel could never find a noodle that was long enough. He would suck the noodles through his front teeth, but just as he was starting to enjoy his oodles of noodles, they would run out. Dougal McFlugel decided to make a noodle, a long noodle, a very long noodle. Dougal McFlugel made a noodle that was so long, it reached to the moon. Dougal McFlugel called it his lunar noodle. Dougal McFlugel's marvellous lunar noodle. It was huge. Even NASA got in on the noodle game. Uh, Houston, we have a green light on the liftoff of the lunar noodle. Green light, that's a go. started on his plate and reached up to the sky, through the stratosphere, out through the ozone layer, into out of space, and straight to the moon. Uh, Houston, the noodle has landed. Dougal McFlugel's marvellous lunar noodle had reached the moon. Dougal McFlugel stuck one end of the noodle between the gap in his front teeth and started to suck. Dougal McFlugel's marvellous lunar noodle came hurtling down from the moon at an incredible speed. And the more Dougal McFlugel sucked on his lunar noodle, the faster it came until it was completely out of control. Dougal McFlugel was getting fatter and fatter as he sucked and slurped and squelched and burped his marvellous lunar noodle down into his tummy. NASA, the space people, told all the spaceships in the area to stay clear. Air traffic control told all aeroplanes to stay away. Police held up traffic. All the children had a day off school. As Dougal McFlugel's magnificent lunar noodle came wriggling and wiggling, sliminy and slurpity through out of space. Through the stratosphere. Through the ozone layer. Through the clouds and hurtling for Dougal McFlugel's gap in his two front teeth. The end was near. This was Dougal McFlugel's favourite part. The bit when the last of his huge lunar noodle flipped past his lip and down his throat and into his tummy. It was nearly there. He could see the end flying towards him. Here it comes. This is it. 
The moment he was waiting for the end of Dougal McFlugel's marvellous Lunar Noodle, then out of the sky swooped a magpie and bit the end of Dougal McFlugel's marvellous Lunar Noodle and deprived him of that final Lunar Noodle flick on his top lip and the noodle's end flicks by his lip and down to his tummy. Ah, oh, what a shame. All that work. All that noodle just to have the last few centimetres pecked away by a pesky magpie. The fright of it all made all his hair fall out. But on the bright side, Dougal McFlugal made a wig out of noodles and now whenever he gets a little peckish, he just nibbles on his hair. Cats enjoy many things. Chasing mice, lying in the sun, drinking milk, being scratched under the chin. But they do not, in any way, shape or form, enjoy taking a bath. Most cats, in fact, would prefer to be chased by several big dogs for a couple of kilometres rather than have a bath. So Aunt Nora knew she had a problem on her hands. The problem was Harry the cat. Not so much Harry himself as his smell. You see, Harry loved playing in the straw in the barn, the dirty, smelly straw as it sometimes was. And plain and simple, after a lot of playing, Harry stank. He ponged. He smelt very bad indeed. Worse was that Harry didn't mind. He found all the different smells rather interesting. Everyone else found them whiffy. That cat smells worse than my gumboots, Gordon the gnome complained to Aunt Nora. Ye should make that creature walk the plank, said Jolly Roger the pirate. Phew, said Norman the fish. One thing almost everyone agreed, Harry had to have a bath. But the one who didn't agree was Harry. A bath. Not with this feline, thank you very much, he meowed, walking slowly round the backyard at Aunt Nora's, trailing such a stink behind him that a goat fainted. This simply cannot continue, said Aunt Nora on one particular morning. Even though it was quite a warm day, all the windows were shut because Harry's pong outside was so very strong. She ran a deep bath in the laundry tub, took a deep breath, then marched outside to catch Harry. After ten minutes of, come here you silly cat, and stop, come down from there, and come here this instant, Aunt Nora, hot, flustered and beaten, slumped at the wooden table in the backyard. You'll never catch him, said Gordon the gnome. What do you suggest then, asked Aunt Nora. <laughs> A good hosing, laughed Gordon, and he scuttled off to where the garden hose was lying next to the clothesline. Harry, perched on top of that same clothesline, called down, Meow, Gordon, what are you up to? I'm giving you a much-needed bath, shouted Gordon with glee as he turned the tap on the hose to full. Unfortunately, the water came out very fast, too fast for Gordon to control, and the hose bucked and twitched like a snake, spraying water everywhere. Over Gordon, over Aunt Nora, and over the washing on the clothesline, over everything, in fact, except Harry. When a drenched Gordon finally turned the hose off, there was very little sound for a moment. Just the drip, drip, dripping of the water off the clothes. And if you listened very hard, the sound of Aunt Nora fuming. Ah, uh, sorry, said Gordon, who then ran into his little gnome house and shut the door. Oh, blow, wailed Aunt Nora. I'm soaked, the washing's ruined, and Harry still smells. Hmm, I smell rather good, I think, smirked Harry, now sitting on a corner of the farmhouse roof, purring and looking very happy indeed with himself. Just then Norman the fish rolled up on his bike. Bit wet round here, he observed. 
Thank you for that, gritted Aunt Nora. It's that smelly cat. I've tried to catch him. Gordon tried to hose him, but nothing works. Oh, snorted Norman. That cat, how do you think he likes more than being a paid, is eating. Oh, yes, laughed Aunt Nora. He tried to eat you once, didn't he? Norman. Ah, yes, but he didn't. Never even got close, chortled Norman as he rode away. Hmm, bet he'd like to, though, thought Aunt Nora, who had had rather a clever idea. Later in the day, as Harry stretched out on the roof in the sun, he heard Gordon talking to Aunt Nora down in the yard. Most surprising, said Gordon. Who'd have thought? A fish just lying in the laundry tub. Just like a fish out of water, said Aunt Nora. What on earth will I do? She continued as she walked away. Harry's ears perked up. Fish. Mmm, he thought. Fish. I don't have nearly enough. Fish. Yum. And he slunk to the edge of the roof and peered over. There was no one anywhere around. The yard was deserted. Harry carefully climbed down the drain pipe, ears alert for the slightest sound, but there was none. The back door was open, and once again there was no one in sight. Hee hee hee, muttered Harry, looking good. He slipped sneakily into the laundry, again no one around. He clambered up the slippery side of the tub, it was stainless steel and very hard to get a grip on, especially with claws, but Harry was very, very keen to get that fish. Finally, puffing, he poked his nose over the rim of the tub. The tub was full of water. Oh well, that makes sense. There is a fish in there somewhere. Fish, water. Hmm, I think oh, that might be it. But something's funny about that fish. I, I can't quite see. Harry strained and stretched and perched himself teetering on the edge of the tub. Still he couldn't quite see. Something was in the tub, resting on the bottom. It sort of looked like a fish. Sort of. Harry squinted and stretched even more. His nose was almost touching the water. And finally, he could see what was sitting on the bottom of the tub. A, a chocolate fish, spluttered Harry, who got such a surprise that he slipped and scattered and clawed and scrambled and fell into the tub. What a commotion. What a noise. What a yowling and meowing. So it wasn't surprising that Aunt Nora walked into the laundry, smiling just a little, as Harry splashed and sploshed and thrashed around. The water wasn't very deep, but Harry did not like it, and he was letting everyone know. Sorry, Harry, said Aunt Nora, but you really did need this bath. Carefully, Aunt Nora lent him and scooped Harry out of the water, put him on the laundry floor and let him go. Harry disappeared out the door and off into the trees. In fact, it was the fastest Aunt Nora had ever seen him move. Gordon and Aunt Nora had felt a little guilty about tricking Harry, but they felt a whole lot happier about how much better he smelt. Hello, I'm Ronnie. Welcome to That's the Story on Rima. Now, I am looking for your stories. Oh my goodness, you've got all the time in the world. Write me a story. Email it in to me. My email address is ronnie at thatsthestory.co.nz. Email me in a story that you've written and we'll pick one a week. If it's yours that we pick, we'll get it recorded and we'll play it right here on That's the Story. How cool would that be? So... Go ahead and write me a story. Email it in to me. My email address, ronnie at thatsthestory.co.nz. Patrick wasn't one for the details. Details, he harumphed to himself. Who needs him? And he would stumble and bumble his way through the day, pretty much making it up as he went along. Plans were boring, lists he couldn't stand. And as for methodology, really, he went down the just-do-it path more often than not. 
One bright sunny Sunday afternoon at around a quarter past eleven, in the middle of the playing field behind Mr Grendel's house, he had an idea. I'm going to fly to the moon, he announced to his friends. How are you going to do that, they replied. And in his usual relaxed manner, he would reply, ha, details, and would harumph and continue to strumble and bumble his way through his cunning plan. Funnily enough, a lot of the time his serious lack of planning seemed to work quite well for him, and this seemed to be one of those occasions. How you gonna build it, his mates taunted him. And Patrick looked quickly around the field and noticed a great big cardboard box just by Mr Grendel's fence. I'm gonna build it with that big box over there. And so off they trotted and dragged the big old box into the middle of the field. What about a steering wheel? His friends thought that perhaps this was the one thing that might trip him up. Patrick looked around and saw something glistening in the long grass of the playing field behind Mr Grendel's house. He ran over and found that it was an old hubcap from a car. Perfectly round and looking not completely unlike the steering wheel of a spaceship. This is what I'll use for the steering wheel, Patrick announced to his disbelieving group of friends that was by now becoming quite a large group. What about buttons? Patrick pulled the buttons off his shirt and used those. What about dials? Patrick used an old coffee tin lid he found on the ground. What about fuel? That was easy. Patrick had an inhaler. He was asthmatic after all. This'll get me off the ground and into the big old box he crawled. His mates started the countdown. Ten, nine, eight. Patrick yelled from inside the spaceship. Stand back! And his mates continued the countdown. Seven, six, five. Patrick yelled from inside the spaceship. Here I go! And his mates continued the countdown. Four, three, two, one. And Patrick, along with his make-believe spaceship, took off and flew into space. His mates just stood there, staring up into the sky, watching as Patrick disappeared into the sky and beyond. It was Geoffrey Doland that pointed out one failing in Patrick's plan. How's he going to get back down? Patrick spent three weeks in hospital recovering from the crash landing. Apparently space was really cool, and he had a wonderful time with the man in the moon, ate heaps of cheese, but the landing was a bit rough. So it just goes to show, it really does pay to plan. Martin loved playing backyard cricket. Every day he'd race home from school, invite around all his friends and spend hours and hours playing cricket in his backyard. He had an old cricket bat, a metal rubbish bin for wickets and a few old tennis balls. Martin was proud of his backyard. It was big and flat and perfect for cricket. All the kids in the neighbourhood loved playing in Martin's big backyard. There was only one problem. Right at the back was the most giant pile of overgrown plants and weeds you've ever seen. Everyone used to call it the jungle because that's what it looked like. And every time Martin played cricket, someone would always hit the ball into the jungle. They'd search and search for the ball, but no one could ever find it. So they'd just get another tennis ball and start playing again. One evening, Martin sat down at the dinner table, looking a bit sad. How'd your game of cricket go, Martin? His dad asked. Martin shook his head. Didn't play today, Dad. Why not? You play every day. There's no tennis balls left. They've all disappeared into the jungle at the back. His dad paused for a moment. Sounds like the tennis ball monster at work. What? Martin asked curiously. That's why tennis balls disappear all the time. It's the tennis ball monster. But I've never seen a monster, Martin replied. They're invisible, Martin. No one's ever seen one, but they're there, all right. Well, how do we make it go away? Follow me, Martin. Martin followed his dad outside to the old tin shed. 
His dad reached into the darkness and pulled out a tall, thin object. This here, Martin, is a sword for defeating the tennis ball monster. Looks just like a spade, Martin stated. Similar, yes. But only with this sword can you scare away the tennis ball monster. How? Tomorrow, Martin, you get up early. You put on your gumboots and you take the sword out to the jungle. Then you slash it around till there's no jungle. It'll scare the monster away and you'll find your tennis balls. Martin got up early the next morning. He put on his gumboots, he picked up the sword that looked like a spade and marched towards the jungle. He was going to get his tennis balls back. He ran up to the jungle and swung his sword around. He kept swinging and swinging at all the plants and weeds. He swung some more and some more and then he found a tennis ball. He swung again and he found two more. The more he swung, the more tennis balls he found. By the end, the jungle was flattened. The tennis ball monster was gone and Martin had found 12 tennis balls. When Martin's dad got home from work, Martin told him how he'd scared off the tennis ball monster. That's my boy, his dad replied, then kept going on and on about how much better the backyard looked and how he's going to start a vegetable patch where the jungle had been. The next day, Martin invited around all his friends. He got out his old cricket bat, positioned the metal rubbish bin, and of course, he now had plenty of tennis balls. So what his dad said was true. Now that the jungle was gone, there was no tennis ball monster, and the tennis balls never went missing again. Now Martin helps his dad keep the backyard nice and clean, so hopefully the tennis ball monster will never bother Martin and his friends again. Okie diddly dokie, here's something for you to do this afternoon. It's a little game called Who Am I? Okay, every day we'll be giving you a different set of clues. See if you can pick who it is that we're talking about based on the clues that we give you. So, without further ado, here are today's clues. See if you can guess who this is. What's his name? What's she called? I think I know who that is. Who could it be? Let's wait and see what the clues are to this quiz. He was born in a log cabin consisting of only one room on the Sinking Spring Farm. His parents were called Thomas and Nancy. He received little formal schooling, however, he was very interested in learning and had a particular passion for reading. Some of his favourite books as a child included Aesop's Fables, Robinson Crusoe and the King James Bible. He was a strong young man. He was six feet four inches tall and athletic. He respected his father and handed him the wages he earned outside of the home until he became 21 years of age, which was a customary tradition during these times. His political career began in March 1832, when he campaigned for the Illinois General Assembly. Although he lost, he remained popular with the locals. He continued his campaign after the Black Hawk War, during which he served as a captain in the Illinois militia. He strongly opposed slavery and led the United States through its bloodiest war, the Civil War, a political crisis which led to the abolishment of slavery. What's his name? What's she called? I think I know who that is. Mm, um, um, No. No, no, no. I think the answer to that one would be no. I have no idea 
who that is. Have you got any ideas who that might be? There were some pretty tricky clues in there. No, not sure. I'm going to have to do some serious Googling this afternoon to try and figure out who that is. Give it a go. Have a bit of a guess at who that might be. If you're not sure, write down some of those clues and do some Googling, some research this afternoon. See if you can figure out who it is. And we'll give you another set of clues tomorrow. Some would say it's a load of rubbish. Codswallop, pork pies, piffle waffle, and yes, fibs. But I reckon it's true. Cuba Street isn't like any other street in Wellington or indeed New Zealand. Cuba Street is arty, weird, and my dad reckons a little bit underground. And I reckon he's right. Under the shops, and there are shops on Cuba Street. Boy, are there shops on Cuba Street. Under the funny water fountain sculpture thingy that Grandad thinks is a complete waste of ratepayers' money, but I think is really cool. Under the footpaths, paving stones, buskers, jugglers, singers and beggars, shoppers and lovers. Under everything that goes on, on Cuba Street, there's another world. See, it's around about now that people use words like codswallop, rubbish and piffle, but I reckon it's true. There's a whole city filled with people going about their business under Cuba Street. Children play in giant underground caverns with weird and wonderful flying foxes that carry them to school and conveyor belts that carry their lunches and bunches of flowers to and from their giant underground markets. There really are fast underground trams because they don't use them up top anymore. They had to go somewhere, but the trams go faster now because there's no cars underground under Cuba Street. Under Cuba Street in Wellington, there are giant fans that blow warm breezes in the summer. There isn't any wind underground, so the giant fans were fitted so children could fly kites. And the giant fans are actually connected to the big funny water fountain sculpture thingy, and it makes the fans go. If you've never been to Cuba Street in Wellington, then I'll tell you a little bit about that big funny water fountain sculpture thingy. It's a big funny water fountain sculpture thingy. It's got red and blue and yellow and green buckets that fill up with water and when they're full the buckets tip over and spill the water over into the fountain and well, that's all it does. Or so you would think. Those buckets are actually connected to the big underground fans that make the kites fly. They're connected to the underground trams that take people to work. They're connected to the conveyor belts and flying foxes and the big funny water fountain thingy is really making all the power for the great big underground city that sits beneath Cuba Street in Wellington. No one knows it for sure, but all the buskers and jugglers and singers and beggars are really from the giant city under Cuba Street too. And all the money they make goes to the families to buy their food. Yes, there's a lot more to Cuba Street in Wellington than you might think. Now, if you live in Wellington, you might already know what I'm talking about. Or maybe you don't. And if you don't live in Wellington, then maybe one day, maybe one day, you might get there. And if you do, while walking down Cuba Street in Wellington, put your ear close to the ground. You might just hear those big fans whirring, the conveyor belts turning, or the underground trams rumbling. Or you might just get a wet ear. I'm not
would you build for that mouse I'd have lots of fun with that I reckon you can start with a shoebox and go from there oh my goodness gracious me the things you could do for a mouse goodness gracious even if you don't have a mouse go ahead and build a house for a mouse anyway what a lot of fun that would be and a great way to pass the afternoon eh? the rain poured down it bounced off the iron roof and dripped down the window panes. The sky was dark and grey, and it didn't ever look like it was going to stop. This is so boring, thought Amelia. There's nothing to do. Amelia wandered into her brother's room. Get out, Thomas yelled. I'm busy. Thomas was playing with his Lego and wanted to be left alone. Amelia went into the kitchen. Can I watch TV? she asked Dad. No, he replied. You've had far too much screen time this week. Find something constructive to do. Amelia wasn't sure what constructive meant. Here, said Dad, as he passed her a cardboard box from the recycling bin. Go and make a house for a mouse. But I don't have a mouse, said Amelia. Make one, Dad said. And then he softened. Here, let me show you. Dad opened the craft drawer and took out scissors, sellotape and a range of felt-tip pens. He explained to Amelia how the house would need a door and some windows, and he helped her to cut rectangle shapes into the cardboard box. Dad showed Amelia how to draw on the inside of the box and told her that the mouse would need curtains and cupboards and maybe a mat on the floor. Amelia drew these onto the sides and bottom of the box. Then Dad showed her how to make a tiny little bed and a chair from the bits of cut-out cardboard used to make the windows and door. The bed and chair would need blankets and a pillow and cushions all drawn onto them. How about I draw a TV and a cupboard full of plates and cups, said Amelia. And as Dad turned to go back to reading his book, Amelia happily drew little mouse pictures, shelves of ornaments, an oven and fridge all on the insides of the box. Finally, Amelia drew a tiny little mouse on a piece of cardboard and coloured him in. She spent ages playing with the mouse in his house, even asking Dad for more cardboard so that she could make more mice and more furniture for inside the house. Time passed by. And then Dad put his book down and said, Look, Amelia, it's stopped raining. And so 
finally, it had. Let's go out into the garden, said Dad. But what about my mouse house? asked Amelia. Let's save it for a rainy day, said Dad, and he lifted the cardboard box into the toy cupboard. Come on, Thomas, let's go outside. I'm gonna build it a bed, gonna make it a TV, gonna butter it some bread, I'm gonna make it a cup of tea, I'm gonna build me a house for a mouse, for a mouse, not a dog nor a cat, but a house for a mouse. That's the story! Dorothy could do anything. No, really, anything. There was nothing Dorothy could not do. Dorothy could do the impossible. Dorothy quite often did the improbable. In fact, the improbable was one of Dorothy's favourite things to do. Dorothy once flew to Mars, quite impossible, in a shoe, extremely improbable. She would build giant castles, quite impossible. She was only one metre tall and only seven years old. She would make those giant castles out of jelly, lime with peaches and pears throughout. Highly improbable. Dorothy could do anything and quite often did. On Monday, she would fly to the moon. On Tuesday, catch a whale. On Wednesday, she would be a cartoon. On Thursday, learn to sail. On Friday, she would swim the Nile. On Saturday, she'd be a spy. Dorothy. On Sunday, she would run a mile and later learn to fly. Dorothy could do anything. No, really anything. There was nothing Dorothy could not do. She would wrestle a bear or catch a shark or run ten times around the park. She would balance a chair upon her nose while skipping around the garden hose. She could ride a bull while juggling bats and odds and ends and thises and thats. She could jump in a pool and make a splash and world records she could smash. But how on earth was a one metre tall, seven year old able to do absolutely everything, including the impossible and the improbable? She just used her imagination. With a little bit of imagination and a bright sunny day, you can lie back on the grass, close your eyes and imagine anything you like like two-headed cows and monkeys that sing and spaceships and aliens and that kind of thing. Hello, I'm Ronnie. This is the afternoon session of That's the Story on Narima. That's my lot for the day. Thanks ever so much for tuning in. I do hope lockdown is treating you really, 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 really well. Don't forget, I'm looking for your stories. Write me a story. Email it in to me. My email address is ronnie at thatsthestory.co.nz. I'll choose one a week. And if it's yours chosen, we'll get it recorded and played right here on That's the Story. Don't forget, I'm also looking for your artwork. Paint me a picture. Draw me a picture. Email it in to me. That email address again, ronnie at thatsthestory.co.nz. I will put them into the That's the Story art gallery on our website, thatsthestory.co.nz. Have a fabulous afternoon, and I'll catch you right back here. Same channel, same place, same time tomorrow. Cheerio. This program was made with funding from New Zealand on air. Goodbye. That's the story that's the story that's the story that I wanna hear. 
thestory.co.nz. Visit the website and let the fun begin.